Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Teej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. And if you're a fan of Soundboard, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. In a few minutes, we'll mix it up and talk about national news instead of state news with Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska. I also bring you voices from the Charlottesville Youth Climate Strike that happened downtown last Friday. But first, I sit down with Charlottesville Tomorrow to talk about some public housing redevelopment projects. Today we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Emily Hayes and Executive Director Giles Morris. Let's start by discussing the redevelopment of South First Street. So this is across Elliott Avenue from the cemetery that's there. If you go down South First Street, there's this segment of all public housing. How did this redevelopment plan get started? The low-income community has been asking for redevelopment for a long time. These houses are definitely aging, and and there are a lot of maintenance issues in a lot of the buildings. So they also have money to do something at the end of South First Street on what's currently a ball field. City Council asked the Public Housing Authority to do a master plan of this area that's going to be redeveloped next and hear from the residents on what they want. And what have the residents said that they wanted? This is, I think, one of the most fascinating processes I've got to see. There's an architect in town named Bruce Wardell who has done these close-knit workshops with low-income residents. He's done it for Friendship Court where they meet like every week and figured out everything about the plan that is going in place there. They did this for Southwood, which is a Habitat for Humanity project. And here they're doing the same thing with residents of South First Street. How did they select the community members who would be part of the redevelopment? So it's really whoever is available. They struggled at first to get anyone to really show up, but then Audrey Oliver, who is the resident commissioner on the Charlottesville Redevelopment and Housing Authority, she went out and sort of pulled her weight around because she's a leader within this community and brought people in and now they have this consistent group. One thing that Councillor Wes Bellamy, who's also a commissioner on this Housing Authority, one thing he noted was that all of the people who have been showing up are all women, at least as far as we could tell. So he was like, where are the men? Why aren't the men engaged in this? What can we do to bring them out? She was saying some of the men in the community really understand the brick and mortar of construction and would have really interesting insights on this process. What are these community meetings like? Um, So there are like about a dozen residents that come every Sunday afternoon and started with things like, how do you read an architectural plan? Because it's just like squares and what do all these squares mean? And going through, like, where do we put things? And I think that's kind of an outgrowth of what happened at Friendship Court and the intentionality and consistency and commitment to doing resident-driven development. You've seen that with Habitat for Humanity over the years with their Southwood project. So that's becoming the new norm. He showed this one image of all of the different placements that different people had done on top of each other and there was basically a consensus of you want the community center in the center we want townhouse types around that and then on Elliott Avenue you could have like more of a multifamily apartment style thing 
they are taking that out to the community. It's definitely not finalized. If neighbors see it and are like, no, you know, I'm sure they'll reconsider. But it sounds like they came upon a consensus and are also talking about increasing the number of families they can house. They talked about in this meeting, there probably will be pressure to increase the density. So 105 was a clear consensus, but I think it sounds like they're willing to maybe go up to 160 or something like that. There is a long, long wait list for public housing, and that's something they've talked about a lot, and they're trying to accommodate a lot of that in their redevelopment of all their properties. They have other ones, like West Haven is another important one. They might try to go denser. How does this redevelopment project fit in with the broader efforts made to expand affordable housing in Charlottesville? Yeah, it's really interesting. So this is basically the city-owned affordable housing Because of that, and because it's also federally subsidized, in terms of the people who can afford to live there, it's whatever income you have, a third of your income. So it can be super low rents compared to, you know, the average rents. It's what people have historically called public housing. Right, right. It's a crucial community because that community doesn't get served most of the time in other ways. There's a couple of things that are interrelated and not the same thing. So affordability is about density and more units. But if the neighborhood says they don't want that and you've been trying to listen to the neighborhood or, or you haven't been listening to the neighborhoods and now you're going to say you are, well, then where does the rubber hit the road there? Who gets to make that call and who sets the priorities? And then if the commitment is to low density because that's what people want, what does that mean for your conversation as a city about affordable housing, especially at the very low income level of subsidized, highly subsidized housing? One thing that Dan Rosenzweig from Habitat for Humanity said that I thought was really interesting was his clients basically are wanting single-family housing. This is not what promotes affordability, but this group has been locked out of that kind of American dream for a really long time. So they end up building that single-family housing, or at least attached, so that people can have the dream that they're looking for. There is a natural tension between the larger conversation about affordable housing in cities like this and the specific conversation about racial justice or reparative justice or the debt owed to black neighborhoods that are now under pressure from market forces. There's just been amazing movement in this conversation. I think, you know, somebody like Councilor Wes Bellamy would would say from when the conversation where it was six years ago around redevelopment of public housing and where we are now. I mean, there was a there was almost an utter disbelief that a private partner would want to be involved, and now Cord and Capture on Riverbend are involved. There was um, a sense that HUD was moving its emphasis away from cities of our size, and I think that is in general true. And yet, because of Charlottesville's significance in this conversation, whether you're looking at the LIHTC credits. Low-income housing tax credits. For Friendship Court or for some of these projects. No, there's money there. There's a lot of things to work out, but there's a huge amount of progress happening. And the fact that the community is now in process is driving that conversation. And there's nitty-gritty conversations about how do we get the men here to talk about this. You know, that's good stuff because conversations will get specific and there will have to be really good answers, I think, to satisfy people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I mean, the relic, though, of this long, long time that residents have been asking for redevelopment is that many, many residents still don't believe that it's going to happen. And even people within this group who are planning it themselves, apparently some of them have asked, like, do you think this is really going to happen? So I think that is indicative of the kind of, you know, trust that still needs to be built and proof. Does the lack of trust come from a complete neglect of these communities or from broken promises? Well, I think that that there were some really intense organizing efforts to get redevelopment to happen, and there were even plans that didn't move forward. So in some ways, it's both. There's also been declining funding for public housing for like 50 years or something. So there's the other answer to that question. The, the people who need to answer that question are the people who are in the processes on the other end. But, I mean, from the outside or as a journalist, you can just see public housing was temporary housing that was built out during Lyndon Johnson's administration and was supposed to last six to ten years or whatever so that people could move on to the middle class. That was the idea at the time. Mm-hmm. And you have people who are generations in the same public housing and the crack e- epidemic and the legacies of the policing efforts that followed it through the 80s and 90s just gutted the trust in these communities, gutted the sense that there was mobility outside or support from the outside or any belief that they were part of the rest of the city. And, you know, I think you see that all around the country. That's, that's, that's not specific to Charlottesville. But people can come to a small university town and believe that that's not here. And here, too, there's nowhere affordable to move into outside of public housing, like mobility to where there's not a next step. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is true of all of the like low income housing that's being redeveloped right now. Friendship Court, there isn't an alternative if you can't get that mobile homes. If you don't have that, there is nowhere else and public housing as well. And I mean, that's one of the specific problems of Charlottesville. Which you, you've got such scarcity in the market of land, and so you know, you have to prioritize in these really heavy-duty ways, density and alternative transportation, but then those have outcomes around people's cultural relationship to where they live and what they expect their house and their living situation to be. You don't move to Charlottesville thinking you're going to be in a high-rise, and the pressure uh, on, the, on the market side on housing is such that we really do have to grow up and put up and figure out what the new plan is or else it won't be affordable. I mean, it just truly won't. Well, before we let you go, could you give us a real quick update on the project that's been dubbed Crossings 2? Yeah, I think this is related to a lot of the things we've been talking about. So uh, Crossings 2 has been considered for a while. The first Crossings is on Preston Avenue and 4th Street, and it serves, you know, chronically homeless people who um, both need housing right now and need some support services to make that housing successful. And part of the Crossings is also subsidized housing. So Councillor Wes Bellamy is a big advocate for this Crossings 2 idea. He says, you know, this could end chronic homelessness in Charlottesville. So people who are out on the streets every year because the housing hasn't worked for them or the housing isn't available. Now, the Charlottesville Redevelopment and Housing Authority, Councillor Bellamy is on the board there. They were talking about maybe a creative way to make this crossings to happen is to use some of CRHA's land. But this is a tense subject for people who are thinking about redevelopment of public housing because they have this small amount of land that they can do all of this on. Their motto is residence first. 
So if you're talking about outside people who are going to benefit from this land that's theirs, that's a tough situation. So It's also a really valuable piece of land right there. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the, one of the spots they're talking about is on Avon Street, right across from Belmont. You know, Councillor Bellamy has said this can be a win-win. So they're trying to get to the, the nitty-gritty of that, which is would the crossings to actually serve a lot of people who are already residents at public housing or who are um, on the wait, the extremely long wait list for public housing? You know, are some of the chronically homeless people on the wait list for public housing? So they're going to find that out. Could some of these services benefit residents? And some of the details, like how would the funding work out? And maybe it could even provide income for the um, for CRJ, which is always tight. What's the next steps on that project? Well, I think they have to answer those questions or it won't go anywhere, at least with CRHA's partnership. One of the things we love about Charlottesville Tomorrow's reporting is that it helps us better understand and engage with the issues in our community. So every week we end this segment by asking everyone, what's on your calendar this week? Well, since we've been talking about housing, I have a housing-related event. It's called Housing Albemarle, and it's about helping Albemarle set their housing priorities. So you know, we've been talking about public housing. How do you serve people on minimum wage jobs? I think if you go to that meeting, you can provide input on where the county puts its resources. At 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday in the county office building. Well, I'm in a jury pool this week, so I will be um, exercising my, um, my civic duties on Friday with jury call. And uh, I guess no other comment about that. It'll break which way it ever it breaks. And then on Tuesday night, I'm going to go meet with the staff of the Cav Daily. You know, we've had some terrific interns from the Cav Daily, and we really respect their reporting. And it's just kind of a way of tightening the conversation between what life as a on-campus journalist is like and what life in, in, a, in a town next to a university is like and how we sort of feed off each other and build the conversation together. So that should be really fun. I, I love the Cab Daily staff and Gracie Kreth, who organized the interview with us, was one of our interns. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. All right, we'll thank talk you. to you again next week. Emily Hayes is a reporter covering housing and development for Charlottesville Tomorrow. Giles Morris is the executive director. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM Network. WTJU and TJ FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond. Well, as we do on Soundboard each week, we turn to state news and politics, and we check in with our friend and journalist Peter Galaska. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion and is based over in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Good morning. Well, I want to start things off today with actually some national news. Some weeks you just kind of have to do that. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in the House of Representatives up in Washington have started the process to impeach the president. Um, take me through what the Virginia congressional delegation is, is doing and saying. Right. Um, well, it's been kind of interesting. Of course, this all stems from re- revelations that um, um, Trump had a phone call and with the Ukrainian president, um, you know, a few a couple months ago. And um, apparently, what he said, as far as you know, asking for favors to investigate Joe Biden on the part of the Ukrainians, was so bad that an intelligence community member filed a whistleblower complaint 
this has snowballed, um, you know, over the past week or so into now the this has finally been enough to, to finally push the, the House uh, Democratic-controlled House of Representatives into going for a uh, impeachment of Donald Trump. And it's interesting because a couple, a couple, you know, new freshman Virginia congresswomen played a, an interesting role in this. How so? Well, it would happen. This is before the the decision was made, and uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi went ahead to, uh, you know, push for the impeachment, which he kind of had to been delaying. Uh, Abigail Spanberger of the Seventh District and Elaine Luria of the Second District, uh, both Democrats. Um, had signed a, a joint op-ed um, in the Washington Post saying, we, the following, are members of either the defense community or the intelligence community, and we are deeply distressed um, at this whistleblower situation and the, and the behavior of Donald Trump. And they really haven't come out that strongly for impeachment. Um, Congresswoman Luria is a uh, Naval Academy graduate and was uh, worked on nuclear propulsion systems on, on you know, warships. Abigail Spanberger was a covert um, spy for the CIA. So they both have this kind of interesting background, and it's usually been in Virginia that more conservative male people tend to wrap themselves up in the flag. But here you have two women, new women, who have actually, you know, have actually done something, um, you know, with their respective defense communities. And I just found that very interesting. It also seems to me like the you almost would have to have the more moderate Democrats, which, you know, these two are, are not out there like radical left at all. Um, with, with, with that kind of standing in the intelligence and defense communities calling for this for, for Pelosi to have actually done it. Yeah, no, it's it's been it's been, it's been interesting because I mean, as I said, you know, of course, there's so many people within the defense and intelligence communities over the past three years who have been highly critical of Donald Trump, uh, along with law enforcement, like uh, you know, some people in the FBI, like Comey and uh, McCain, people like that. And so you're just finally now having it pulling pulling more people into the mix. And you know, as you said, both uh, Luria and Spanberger had been moderate you know, Democrats, uh, and they kind of have to be because their their districts could go easily back into the red. And this, I don't know, will it backfire in them? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I want to switch gears and talk about a, a perennial Virginia topic, uh, uh, tobacco companies. Philip Morris and Altria uh, were trying to merge for a while. They're in talks to do so. Now what's going on? Oh, it's been very interesting, and it all relates to vaping. Um so the news is, of course, is the past you know couple of months. It's more than 500 people have <clears throat> have been gotten sickly, grossly ill, and about nine have died so far while vaping um, using e-cigarettes. Supposedly they were mixing some kind of cannabis product with it, um, but I don't. It's not known. The FDA, Food and Drug Administration, has danced around you know the e-cigarettes for a while, and finally it's come down hard against them. Trump wants to ban flavored e-cigs in a bunch of localities and states like Massachusetts, for example, want a, 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 ban, a four-month ban on just about every e-cigarette sale there could be. Well, this would kind of hit Altria and Philip Morris USA because they had, of course, been trying to find new niches, new markets, etc., as their regular traditional cigarettes, tobacco cigarettes, uh, sales have declined steadily. And um, just um, all about or late last year, Altria bought 35% of Juul Labs, which is in the world the nation's largest e-cigarette maker, uh, for like $12.8 billion. 
And the idea was is that this could help people, you know, help replace the revenue that they're losing from regular cigarettes. They also invested in a Canadian cannabis firm. Well, this is kind of making Philip Morris International, which was split away from Philip Morris USA back in 10 years ago or so, and they're considering a remerger. But all this went, you know, the idea was that these new products like vaping are going to, you know, push us into the future. Well, that's not the case right now. So Philip Morris International backed out of the merger. And this is implications because, you know, Peltry is based in the, in Richmond or Henrico County and then has a big tobacco plant here. So it's huge. It employs thousands. Yeah. So, I mean, Altria will continue doing its thing, just it won't be remerging with Philip Morris. But there's, you know, definitely some dark clouds on the horizon if, if the country and state mm-hmm. after state, you know, come down harder on, on vaping. Yeah, well, there's always been a big question about vaping. I did some, I've done stories about vape shops and the rise of companies in the last few years. And, you know, the attitude was that, you know, vaping is, is better than tobacco because even though you get addictive nicotine, you don't get the tar and other carcinogenic things that you get with regular smokes. And, um, but then they say the problem was, is that, you know, you didn't really quite know what was in the cigarettes because many of them are made under questionable conditions in China and other places. And in some cases, the batteries would blow up and hurt people. And But this, no one saw this, this illness thing coming, and no one can quite explain it either. All right. Well, I want to switch gears one more time to a story that, that maybe started off as a local story some time ago, but has now been in the Washington Post and everywhere else. Uh, Warren County, Virginia, up uh, near the Blue Ridge in, in Front Royal, um, there are indictments there for pretty much every official and border supervisors member in the county. What on earth is going on? Well, that's a very interesting <clears throat> story um, because it sounded like basically just about uh, I think it was on um, just a few days ago the state police uh, announced indictments uh, of you know every all five board of supervisors in Warren County. And the uh, county attorney, and um, I think a total of 14 were indicted uh, for, you know, these are misdemeanor charges. They're linked to some felony charges against the former head of the um, County Economic Development Authority, uh, Jennifer McDonald. And there's another twist in this story. The the former sheriff, uh, Sheriff uh, uh, McEatherin, killed himself after he was, these charges started coming down in recent months. He just... He just shot himself. Pretty, pretty bad deal. What's going? What's the story? Well, the story is basically that uh, McDonald was getting involved with uh, an old fiber site that we used to had a fiber plant there years ago, and it was very polluted. And they cleaned it up, and she wanted to develop a thirty-acre tract into some kind of office park, manufacturing facilities. It would also include a an eight million dollar training facilities for for police officers and sheriff's deputies that uh, the sheriff would run. Well, it turned out that in total, about $21 million was missing, and a lot of the funding that they'd gotten through whatever, you know, through EDA funds and things like that, uh, had gone to pay credit card bills, uh, buy houses, things like that. And uh, it was just, you know, a whole web of of supposedly um, open embezzlement. Some people think it's the worst ever in the state. Um, but I've never heard of a situation where everybody, every official, top official in the county is, is charged. Well, and the, the Board of Supervisors here are saying, look, as soon as we found out about this, we, we took action to, to, you know, terminate these people or whatever. I mean, how is everybody in the Board of Supervisors implicated? 
Well, it's because they were you know, some kind of malfeasance of office and not, not not letting you know not being paying attention to things that were criminal on their watch. I mean, this is you know Front Royal is, is where the action is, and it's a small town. And uh, so you know, as some people say, it's like Mayberry, but this is Mayberry on on, on acid, you know. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure Don Knotts would have uh, some things to say about it. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm sure he would. <laughs> all right, Peter. Well, thanks for uh, taking us through the news this week. Okay, bye. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network. T-E-E-J dot F-M. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. In our last segment, I bring you voices of the youth climate strike. It happened all over the world and right here in downtown Charlottesville last Friday. We don't want your pipeline, we don't want your pipeline. We'll take the sunshine, the water, and the wind. We're gonna put a stop sign on Dominion's pipeline. Go tell your neighbors, go tell your friends. I'm Gudrun Campbell. So we're doing the strike as part of the global school strike for climate movement. Climate change is a political problem, and so we're out here to demand a political solution because this is impacting our futures, and so we're not going to let the adults ignore this crisis. We don't want your pipeline. We don't want your pipeline. We'll take Climate change is not a lie. Do not let our planet die. Climate change is not a lie. Do not let our planet die. Climate change is not a lie. We hear it on the news almost every week. Dominion says don't worry, but it ain't wise to be flirting with disaster with their pipeline. Taylor Harper, my great-great-grandfather, he worked the tobacco field there in Union Hill as a slave. Upon the Emancipation Proclamation where he received his freedom, he was able to purchase a portion of that land that he worked as a slave. Back in 1885, he paid $15 for this parcel of land, which now, over 100 years later, Dominion is trying to take it through eminent domain. It's not going to happen. Everybody we don't want your pipeline, we don't want your pipeline. We'll take the sunshine, the water, and the wind. We're gonna put a stop sign on Dominion's pipeline. Go tell your neighbors, go tell your friends. We're the elders in the community, willing to be eccentric, dress funny, being loud, energized the community. We're here to support the students, the future.
future generations. We want to protect the environment for our grandchildren. Everybody is our grandchild. schoolers like elementary schoolers mm -hmm. so I love the overwhelming support and just like how people are teaching their children to care and it shows that there's just so much room for like growth what does your sign say uh, mine says invoke fear and inform it's really dark oh, man. <laughs> I mean the I mean, only way people will learn is by through fear time. yeah we went the terrifying route. yeah and also at the same time, here, us living in America, with the effects of climate change, we're not the ones that are going to see the effects first. It's going to be those in impoverished countries that are really going to bear the blunt of what we're doing here. Well, on my side, it says, stop denying our planet is dying. And there is uh, the earth and like flames and smoke and the land is all polluted and then on the right side there's a healthy earth with green trees and there's clean water and fish. Everybody was joining, it got really, really big, and that was really exciting. And I'm really happy that so many people care about this. Yeah. I just feel very empowered because everybody had the courage to go up and speak, and they all made signs and took time out of their daily lives to come here. I had to ask my mom, and I'm always a yes when it comes to the environment. We saw a lot of people wanting the same thing, which was really cool. <laughs> um, yeah, it was really nice to see a bunch of like young people and adults to just kind of coming together to yeah, having everybody realize what's going on on our planet right now and helping to try to make it better than it is right now. If you got to sit in a room with the governor or the president or somebody like that, what would you want to tell them? Well, I would tell them to ban single-use plastics, like plastic water bottles and straws and plastic bags and stuff like that. Yeah, I'd probably say the same thing because we're just filling up our oceans with stuff that, like, we don't even have to be making. I would say that it's their job to act too. It's not all up to us. Climate change is not our life. Do not let our planet die. Climate change is not our life. Do not let our planet die. Climate change. 
that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I hope you learned something new this week. If you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. My name's Mary Garner McGee, production assistance this week by Justine Baird. Our theme music is Chioga Beat by Marina Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TEEJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M.